This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Tonight, big tech goes to war with conservatives. Miranda Devine, the author of Laptop from Hell, will be joining us from New York with more disturbing evidence of collusion between the social media giants and government agencies that stopped Americans learning the truth about Joe Biden's wayward son. And Amanda Stoker issues a rallying cry to the quiet Australians to speak up against the radical and dangerous ideas that are changing our culture and country. This is Battleground, screening on ADH TV, a safe space for intelligent, honest and respectful debate. You can watch it for free on the old-fashioned old World Wide Web, www.adhtop.tv, or even better, on the ADH TV app, which you can download for free on your smartphone or smart TV from your app store. But first, to a disturbing development in the debate about the so-called First Nations voice to Parliament a change to the constitution which will be put to a referendum. We've had precious little detail on what this voice will look like. What powers will it have? How will it enhance or weaken our parliamentary democracy? How will it be prevented from straying from its mission? Whatever that mission might be. The Prime Minister has been less than helpful in his arguments so far. What we'll be voting for, he says, is, quote, a straightforward proposition, a simple principle, a question from the heart, close quote. It's not very much at all from that, of course. We're not learning very much either from the expensive advertising campaign that was launched last week, which is big on emotion, but short on facts. i got a story to tell you. It's a good one. It's about how these people, the first people, got a voice. 60,000 years they've been speaking. Had 363 languages. But no voice. No say on matters which affected them. It wasn't right. So, me and your granddad. Me and your mum. The whole nation did something about it. People called their friends and families. People talked about it on the streets. Talked about it at work, on the field. Everybody made a song and dance about it. Everyone walked side by side. And that's how we changed this country for the better. How we made history. Is that story true? It could be. Authorised by the Uluru Dialogue, Sydney. And so the message, if I get this right, is that we must change history by having a conversation. OK, let's have that conversation. Let's hear both sides of the argument and work it out for ourselves. The voting from the heart bit, well, we get that, but I, for one, would prefer to vote with my head. We'd like some reasoned arguments as to why we should be voting yes. We must hear Indigenous Australians like Jacinta Price, who say the voice won't solve the real problems of education, health, joblessness, alcoholism, violence that are rife in Indigenous communities. We must hear from those also who fear the unintended consequences to democracy and the law that come from changing the constitution, however well-intentioned those changes might be. Well, what are the chances of a free conversation like that when the powerful institutions, the mainstream media, corporations, sporting bodies and so forth are supporting the yes case? And what are the chances of an open conversation now that big tech has joined them? The social media gatekeepers in Silicon Valley are priming their algorithms to silence the no case. Just as they shut down the no case for the COVID-19 lockdowns, the no case on vaccine mandates and the no case on Joe Biden, which we'll be hearing about shortly. 
Last week, the Institute of Public Affairs posted a video on Facebook in which Senators Jacinta Price and James McGrath, together with respected academic Anthony Dillon, explained by why, 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 why they'll be voting no. Here's part of it. The idea of the voice uh, for many Indigenous people that I know um, is actually is actually detrimental and entrenching further uh, the fact that we're, con we're being considered as one voice and our individual rights are not being recognised. We should look at proposals that unite Australians, not the proposals that divide Australians. The 1967 referendum was about uniting Australians. One of the problems with, or one of the dangers with a lot of the movements we see, you know, constitutional recognition, the voice, etc., etc., is that it reinforces the existing us-them mentality. And I think it's pretty clear the us-them mentality is not working, it cannot work. I firmly believe that um, the idea of having a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament is telling us that there are those that believe that we are forever going to be disadvantaged. Well, soon after that video was posted, Facebook took it down. It sent a message to the IPA saying, your ad was rejected because it doesn't comply with our ads about social issues, elections or policies. This means that your ad isn't running and will not be delivered to your audience. We know this will impact on your current business objectives. Will it ever? Facebook's decision made by a bunch of faceless Californian tech heads impacts our freedom, our democracy and the decision Australians are supposed to be making on our constitution. Let's just ponder the ludicrousness of this just for a while. An Aboriginal woman with a voice in Parliament is being denied a voice on Facebook just because she argues against the proposal for a voice to Parliament. The voices of a fellow senator and a distinguished Aboriginal academic have also been cancelled. And presumably this editorial will be cancelled too if we were ridiculous enough to try and paste it on Facebook. The tech giants are denying Australians their right to a free, open debate on a matter of vital public interest. They are interfering in a referendum which Australians alone should be deciding. They're behaving in a manner hostile to our democracy and insulting our intelligence. The Prime Minister must intervene. He must, he must learn from his predecessor, Scott Morrison, who showed the way when he stared down big tech's threats and forced them to pay for the Australian news content they were previously stealing. Morrison was prepared to take on Google and Apple on behalf of Australian parents who were being denied the access they needed to monitor their children's online activity. Adney Albanese must do the same if this referendum is to be decided fairly. Firstly, he should announce that the government will fund education campaigns for the no case as well as the yes case, just as governments have done in previous referenda. Then he must pick up the phone to the tech giants and tell them that if they want to operate in Australia, they must respect our democracy. He should warn them that interference in Australia's political affairs will not be tolerate, tolerated and he should instruct the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, to investigate what legal sanctions may be available and if our laws need to be adjusted. Albanese, we know, wants us to vote yes, which gives him the opportunity to establish himself as a true statesman by defending the rights of those with whom he profoundly disagrees. We're being told that this referendum will be a moment that will be remembered in history. Whatever the result, let's hope it doesn't go down as the moment when we surrendered the integrity of our democracy to big tech. My Menzies Research Centre colleague, Amanda Stoker, joins me now from Brisbane. Amanda, uh, Facebook's decision to censor an IPA video putting the no case for the voice to parliament referendum doesn't bode well for freedom of speech in this debate, does it? It really doesn't. And really all Australians should find this deeply troubling. The idea that a polite, respectful video that really sought to draw out the importance of valuing every individual on the basis of what's on the inside rather than on the basis of the colour of their skin. I mean, that should be such an un uncontroversial message. It isn't funny. The idea that big tech companies based overseas are designing algorithms that will censor out what is really very um, mainstream content because it doesn't fit with their political agenda, it's only a sign of things to come if it isn't addressed. 
Well, look, as a, as a former Assistant Attorney General, um, what power, if any power, does the federal government have to stop big, big tech interfering in this way in, in what's essentially our sovereign political debate? Look, the federal parliament does have um, the power to legislate in relation to these matters. It comes out of the constitutional power that relates to telecommunications and the like. There's no doubt they have the power to do this. What's important, though, is that any intervention in this space be grounded in those fundamental freedoms that have grown a free and fair Australia. It can't be about picking winners. It can't be about picking and choosing what content um, fits with our time. It's got to be based on those broad brush principles that allow a whole range of ideas to be shared, to be contested on their merits and to rise and fall accordingly. It troubles me greatly that the, the algorithm that they pretend has no political filter seems to let an awful lot of quite extreme terrorist content get up from time to time, but it takes down really very uh, mainstream political content uh, because it doesn't fit that leftist agenda that's on the ascendancy. Um, that should trouble everyone, whatever their politics are in this country. It's a real test for Albanese. Well, I think so too, because um, today uh, it's, it's conservative voices being taken down. But of course, many of these, the people driving this actually come from the far left. He's going to, in time, find himself in trouble, isn't he? I mean, it's, in a, national, it's a question of national interest, not what, what your poli particular political stance may be on the voice. Absolutely. And every Australian has a stake in us being able to communicate freely, um, including to hear and share and debate ideas with which we disagree. There will always be times when our views are in the minority, whatever our political colour, and it needs to be the case that that contest of ideas can occur so that the best ideas rise to the top and get to take our country forward into the strongest possible future. We've all got a stake in that, and it starts with making sure certain ideas, uh, particularly when they are such um, ordinary, sensible and um, mainstream ones, aren't being taken out of the argument. Well, uh, speaking of free debate, there was plenty of that at the CPAC uh, conference last weekend that we both attended in Sydney. It was encouraging, I thought, to see so many uh, ordinary Australians, let's call them quiet Australians, turn up in person, uh, even if it did get a little bit willing at times. Yeah, we've heard a lot this weekend people saying, oh, the party's changed or whatever. I mean, is the party an immutable force and can people still actually get in and change it from within if they're committed? Well, I, to be frank, I don't know that the Liberal Party needs a whole lot of changing. It has profound... Hey, calm down, will you? I thought Let we were finish. a Conservative gathering. You're worse than a socialist audience. Give me a I, chance to speak. I, I, I feel like I found myself on the set of Q&A. <laughs> Amanda, I'm not sure everybody in that audience understood what Nick Minchin meant when he said the Liberal Party didn't need to change, but I get the mood of the audience. Uh, I don't think they're asking the Liberals to change their values. They just want them to proclaim them a little bit more loudly. Yeah, I think in truth, if Nick had had the chance to finish his, his sentence, um, everyone would have realised they were on the same page. The values of the Liberal Party, the um, stand for small government, for individual freedom and liberty, the primacy of the family, um, the respect for the individual strengths and talents and spirit of the individual, all of those things I think everyone in the room was united around. Um, it's just a matter of how well there has been adherence by some to those values in recent times. Um, one really encouraging thing about the conference, though, is that there was just so much support for those beliefs being the foundation for taking our country forward into the future. Um, and that's enormously encouraging. You wrote in the Australian Financial Review this week about the dangerous trend uh, in our culture towards judging people by group identity rather than their character. For example, you wrote these ideas are dangerous because they divide and dehumanise while simultaneously destroying the institutions that allowed our nation's rise to prosperity. 
Well, I think those on the centre-right sometimes talk about the march of these bad ideas as if they're unstoppable, but, but you say not. You say the march of radical and dangerous ideas through the institutions has only been possible because Conservatives have quietly acquiesced. Is that a criticism of Conservative politicians or Conservatives more generally? Look, I just think it's a reflection on how we got here and it's a prescription for how to make things right. Um, culture doesn't just happen in Parliament. In fact, that old saying that says politics is downstream from culture is, I think, right. We create the space for politicians to stand for the things that we think are important by creating a climate in our community where those ideas are on the ascendancy. Um, it's a lot to ask politicians, um, although we would very much like to see it as much as is possible, to valiantly stand for beliefs that those of us voting wouldn't be prepared to speak up for in our workplace or in our community. So my call to all people who want to see, for instance, um, fundamental freedoms or diversity of opinion respected, to all families who want to see a place for traditional families or for keeping age and appropriate content out of schools. If you really believe that stuff, it's not just enough to vote for it or indeed to smash Conservatives at the ballot box when they fail to meet the grade. That just gets you a further left-wing government. What you need to do is become participants in culture and in doing so, shape the climate where these ideas don't actually require anyone to go out on a really risky limb. And we do that in our everyday activities. When we go to the PNC and speak up, when we agree to be on the work HR committee and stop um, our colleagues being pressured into, you know, supporting causes that don't align with their values, when we turn sausages at Bunnings for a cause that we care about, when we go to the footy club and help to mentor kids whose families are going through a rough time, all of these things build a social fabric that reflects conservative values. The reason the left's values dominate at the moment is because they've been doing that cultural work when for recent times, fewer conservatives have. Um, that means we have a pickle to get ourselves out of now, but it also means we know the way forward in order to repair our culture and in doing so, create a better, freer and more prosperous future for all of our fellow Australian citizens. Yeah, indeed. Look, um, just going back to the conference, the CPAC conference for a while, just to, I was talking to people all around the building at the weekends and, and the thought occurred to me as I heard them put their perspective that if we're going to recover the 660,000 votes that the coalition lost between 2019 and 2022, we need to start right there amongst those people at the CPAC conference. I got the firm impression that the coalition lost many of them because of the trauma of COVID-19 generally, you know, whether it's people who lost their businesses, lost their jobs because they chose not to be vaccinated, who kept from loved ones, uh, in some case, cases lost family and friends to illnesses that they linked to the vaccines. Whatever it is, uh, many of those things, of course, were decided by state governments, but it seems that Scott Morrison bore the brunt of a pent-up anger and frustration. Would you agree with that analysis? Yeah, I do. And while the harm was being inflicted by state governments overwhelmingly, um, there was no doubt a sentiment from um, the kind of people who are at the conference um, who generally have a, a centre-right worldview that they would have liked to have seen the federal government um, stand up for their concerns, even if uh, the harm was being inflicted by others. It is true, I think, that Scott Morrison and the Liberals uh, bore a disproportionate brunt of it, um, particularly in circumstances where state governments had only a year before been rewarded for what were heavy-handed and draconian measures. Um, and that is, in a sense, frustrating and disappointing. But it also, I think, is an important thing on which to reflect because while there's been lots of talk from um, the commentariat about the influence of the Teals in the election result um, and the influence of some of those more 
um, climate and, um, you know, federal ICAC type issues in dragging people away from the Liberals to the left, there was also a very significant movement of people on the Conservative side away from the Liberal Party because of their disappointment over these issues and also around some of the biggest spending issues that had accompanied um, some of the COVID measures. We need to acknowledge the impact of COVID on both sides, um, I think, to truly understand the way forward and to ensure that the next election result doesn't take that right flank for granted, even as it tries to earn back the respect of those who wanted to the teals. Mm. Well, judging from our experience of the weekend, you'd be very foolish to take them for granted. They're good people. Many of them voted for One Nation, UAP, Liberal Dems. Uh, but, you know, they're essentially conservatives and the largest conservative party in the country, the Liberal Party, should be able to find a home for them, I think, don't you think? Absolutely. There um, is inordinately better performance from the Liberal Party when it is a home that can, um, you know, house a range of perspectives, including the conservative one. Great. Thank you, Amanda. And we look forward to hearing you and your perspective again next week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nick. In October 2020, three weeks before Joe Biden was elected president of the United States, the New York Post published a series of private emails revealing evidence of corruption by his son, Hunter Biden. The Post's front page story revealed Hunter Biden's close connection with a corrupt Ukrainian energy company that began when his father was vice president. In one email, a Ukrainian executive thanks Hunter Biden for, quote, the opportunity to meet your father, close quote. The Post subsequently published more evidence of Hunter Biden's business dealings in Russia and China. And it also published evidence of Hunter Biden's drug habit and his personal depravity. The evidence was clear. During Joe Biden's term as vice president, his son had been enriching himself by grifting his credentials as a person with influence, with influence in the second highest office of the land. The story was very credible. The emails had been sourced from Hunter Biden's own laptop, which had been left abandoned in a Delaware repair shop. And the journalist behind the story was Miranda Devine, a former colleague of mine and a friend for 30 years, whose rigour and professionalism I knew was second to none. Yet the story was barely reported elsewhere, except in denunciations of it as a product of Russian disinformation. Well, uh, it's, uh, the paper found its reputation trashed and its account shut down on Twitter for two weeks. Miranda Devine joins me now from New York to discuss her story, the cover-up, the evidence of collusion, and the troubling implications for freedom and democracy. Miranda, welcome to ADH TV, your first appearance, I believe. Thanks, Nick. Great to be with you. Now, when you and I worked together on the Daily Telegraph, and we're going back to the 1990s now, the, the working rule, I think, for all of us was if you had to choose between a conspiracy and a cock-up, you'd go for the cock-up every time. I think after the story, treatment that your story had, I started to realise that rule no longer applies. Just because something sounds like a conspiracy theory doesn't mean it's not true. Look, I think that's a good way of putting it. it it's always has surprised us from the day that we first published this story, um, October 14, 2020, which was just three weeks before the presidential election. It surprised us that uh, big tech, that Facebook and Twitter came down so hard on the story and were so willing to show their, their claws, show their power. Um, it obviously meant a lot to them to uh, just suppress the story and censor it and ensure that there was nothing damaging um, published before the election about one of the two candidates for president. And, uh, you know, this was a damaging story, not just because this was the president's son, but because the president himself, Joe Biden, the then candidate for president, was implicated. He had lied to the American people during the campaign and said he knew nothing about his son Hunter's overseas business dealings. He was the product uh, that his son and his brother, Jim Biden, were selling 
uh, overseas to the highest bidder, particularly to America's number one adversary, China. Uh, he knew what was going on. He was intimately involved. Uh, and that's why this story was so damaging to him and obviously why uh, big tech and the rest of the media decided to suppress it and censor it. And I think now, um, you know, almost two years later, we've seen uh, the the cover-up is actually a bigger story than the original corruption story because it involves uh, not just the Democratic Party and the Biden campaign, uh, but big tech and also the FBI, the security uh, establishment of America, the security state. And it wasn't as if your story had come out of the blue. I mean, two weeks earlier, the then President Donald Trump had put the allegations or some of them to Biden in the first presidential debate. Let's remind ourselves what happened. China ate your lunch, Joe, and no wonder your son goes in and he takes out what he takes out billions of dollars takes out billions of dollars to manage. He makes millions of dollars. And also, Simply while we're at true. it, why Simply is it, just out of curiosity, the mayor of Moscow's wife gave your son three and a half million dollars. What did he true. do to deserve it? Totally discredited. Totally discredited. And by the way... Well, wait, he talk, didn't get no, three no, and a no. half million dollars, Joe? Mr. Vice He got three Mr. and a half President, million dollars. It is not true. Oh, really? Mr. Oh. President, but, Mr. you... It's an open discussion, please. Now, you, you, it's a fact. Well, There's, you have not raised an issue. Let the vice totally president answer. Discredited. Did Barista was a pay him one hundred eighty-three thousand a month with, with no they, experience in energy? Mr. Look, president, no my son did nothing wrong at Barista. I think he did, Mr. President. Let him answer. He doesn't let me answer because he knows I have the truth. His, his position has been totally, thoroughly discredited. By who? And you the media. By everybody. Well, by the, by media, the media, by our allies, by the World Bank, by, e by everyone has discredited. Well, Miranda, uh, let's go to that three and a half million dollars. You write in your book that on April the 4th, 2014, Russia's richest woman, Elena Bacharina, the wife of the corrupt former mayor of Moscow, met with Hunter Biden shortly after wiring $3.5 million to a company run by Biden's close partner, Devin Archer. The link's unmistakable. So did the now President Joe Biden lie in that debate? Well, look, we don't know exactly how much intimate knowledge he had about Hunter's uh, business dealings. Um, he certainly kept himself. He had uh, he, he told his brother uh, that he had plausible deniability, um, so that he wasn't didn't get down in the weeds in the details. What we do know, Joe Biden did lie about was his knowledge of Hunter and Jim Biden's overseas business dealings because he met with, uh, at last count, um, more than a dozen of Hunter and Jim's overseas business partners. Uh, he flew Hunter Biden on Air Force Two into China to meet one of his business partners. He flew him to Mexico on another occasion. Uh, he flew other business partners of Hunter on Air Force Two with him. And so um, he was. it was just a very... Um, organic way that Joe Biden had always done business for 40 years since he was a senator in Delaware, which is a peculiar state that a lot of Australians might not fully understand. It's a very small state, but it's also the state where most American corporates are headquartered because it has very opaque uh, business laws uh, and it also is very favourable to business in tax tax and opacity, basically. And so, uh, so there were a lot of very wealthy um, corporates in Delaware that were very happy to grease uh, the wheels of the senator from Delaware, Joe Biden, who also had some pretty powerful roles through the years as the uh, you know chairman of the Judiciary Committee, uh, which decided who got to be a judge, uh, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And so he... Um, and his family benefited from that, not necessarily with cash in hand, but with, um, you know, it, his son Hunter was given grace and favour jobs at vastly inflated salaries. Um, and, and he was expected with that money to then uh, fund the rest of the family. He complained bitterly about that. And, and um, you know, Joe also always boasted about being the poorest man in Congress, but he had a champagne lifestyle and 
caviar tastes and always lived in DuPont mansions in Delaware and uh, that were well beyond his capacity to pay for, uh, you know, as on his senator's salary. But he always seemed to be extremely lucky uh, in real estate and uh, he would he would be sold houses at knockdown prices by various donors or they, various donors would buy houses from him at inflated prices. And this was just the way life worked. It was a magic carpet ride if, in Delaware if you were a Biden. And so when it came to his being vice president, this was just mother's milk to him. It was completely natural to internationalise that influence peddling scheme and to use his son Hunter and his uh, brother Jim to do the business end of the deal. And he would come in as, uh, you know, as as the power man. And, um, you know, the evidence of quid pro quo, the evidence of lies, it's it's all very carefully done. You need subpoena power, as the Republicans will have next year. Um, And also, um, they need to, you know, as they say, follow the money. And I think that's what uh, a couple of Republican senators did very well um, in 2020. And that was part of uh, the evidence that went into my book that buttressed um, the the information coming out of the laptop. And this was Treasury Department documents showing uh, suspicious activity reports that banks have found coming from um various suspect sources overseas in China, Kazakhstan, Romania and Russia and so on, Ukraine, coming into uh, bank accounts in America associated with the Bidens. So in you see in the debates, um, Joe, uh, Trump tried to parlay our story into some attack lines on Joe Biden, but Joe Biden had a very valuable Um, weapon against Donald Trump. And that was this scurrilous letter written by 51 former intelligence operatives, uh, including four former heads of the CIA, like John Brennan, uh, Leon Panetta. And they claimed, having not seen the laptop, that it had all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. And that letter just basically crushed our story. It It was the fig leaf for other media not to cover it. And it gave an excuse for big tech to continue to suppress it. And it gave Joe Biden a get out of jail free card in the debate against Trump. Well, that's that's I mean, that is incredible that that people at that level in government bodies, in government administration were prepared to put that letter up just to save Joe Biden's skin at that time. Right. I mean, and you found out more since I think about the involvement of those organisations in this. Well, the the most extraordinary um, discovery that we've made just lately is that um, we knew that Rudy Giuliani, who gave uh, us at the Post um, a copy of the hard drive, the Hunter Biden laptop, um, he had been under covert surveillance since a few weeks after he became then sitting President Trump's personal attorney. Um, for two years. And in that two-year period, um, in August of 2020, the FBI would have had access to an email that came into his inbox from the owner of that Delaware computer repair shop, a guy called John Paul MacIsaac. Hunter Biden had dropped off his laptop to be repaired in April of 2019, never came back and picked it up. And uh, over time, that became the property of John Paul MacIsaac, and he started to look at the laptop. He happened to be a Trump supporter, and uh, he found a lot of very disturbing information about, um, particularly about that corrupt Ukrainian uh, energy company that was paying Hunter Biden a million dollars a year. And he thought that there was material that was indicative of crimes that had been committed and he wanted the FBI to have it. So in December 2019, he gave it to the FBI, thought that they would do something with it. They did nothing with it. So um, the following August, he tried to contact various Republican members of Congress. They ignored him. And finally, he saw Rudy Giuliani on television, thought he'd try contacting him. His email that went into Rudy Giuliani's inbox with Rudy Giuliani and his lawyer read would also have been accessed by the FBI. And that email is really amazing. It's John Paul MacIsaac has chapter and verse uh, about what would end up being um, 
five months later, um, our story in, in or our series of stories in the New York Post showing that Joe Biden was involved in this influence peddling scheme. And um, so the FBI had access to that. They also would have had access to later on to text messages uh, between me and Rudy Giuliani discussing um, you know, whether or not the, the Post was going to publish this um, and then that we were going to publish it. And um, at about this time, just before we did publish the story in the Post, um, the FBI went to Facebook. And we know this because Mark Zuckerberg, the owner of Facebook, told Joe Rogan in a podcast recently, uh, the FBI went to Facebook and told them with such specific detail uh, to look out for a story that was going to come out that was going to be um, Russian disinformation that they had to make sure that they would crush and censor. And so when our story came out, um, the FBI had told Facebook with such specificity that they knew within instant what that our story was the one the FBI was telling them about. So I asked Facebook, uh, our FBI, they didn't respond, but I asked Facebook, what exactly did the FBI tell you to look out for? Did they ask you about, did they tell you about uh, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, a laptop? And so the answer came back, um, they did not mention Hunter Biden. So by omission, you can assume that the FBI warned Facebook to look out for a story about Joe Biden and maybe about a laptop. So uh, that's, that's you know, whatever the FBI told Facebook, they were spying on, on, on Rudy Giuliani. The president's uh, lawyer, up, essentially. They're spying the on the president's lawyer. lawyer. Yeah. Spying on the president's lawyer. They, later on, they raided Rudy Giuliani's um, uh, house and office apartment in New York and office on um, supposedly on um, allegations that he'd violated foreign agent registration um, laws, which uh, also, funnily enough, Hunter Biden is under investigation for. Um, a year after they raided him and took all his devices, uh, they they gave his devices back and told the New York Times that they weren't investigating him anymore. So the process is the punishment in this case. But also it gave them the the legal pretext to spy on the president's lawyer. And, mm. um, you know, that's disturbing enough in itself. But then we also know from whistleblowers that have come forward since from the FBI that um, the FBI uh, sat on that laptop and warned off other FBI agents to investigate it, saying that it was in disinformation. We also know that um, Tony Bobolinsky, who's um, Hunter Biden's former business partner, who forms the third part of the jigsaw puzzle that I put together for my book, Laptop from Hell. Tony Bobolinsky came forward to the FBI 11 days before the 2020 election, gave them a five-hour interview and the contents of three of his phones, um, which all of that information overlapped with uh, corroborated um, the, the information on the laptop that we had published and also because he had a lot of encrypted messages with Hunter Biden and Jim Biden and their other partners um, in relation to this big Chinese deal. And so he he told the FBI about that and about Joe Biden's involvement. He met Joe Biden twice. And um, the FBI, again, did nothing. They never called him back again. Um, mm. Tony Bobolinsky, you would think, would be the star witness for the grand jury in Delaware that was investigating under Biden for tax tax evasion and money laundering and various other things to do with his overseas business dealings. Um, but they never called Tony Bobolinsky. And we now know from FBI whistleblowers that Tony Bobolinsky's material that he'd given to the FBI was also buried, censored, and other, other agents were warned off, don't touch that. Um, and... Uh, and, you know, he, 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 Tony Bobolinsky is the guy who verified uh, one of the emails that we published um, in which uh, the business partners of Hunter Biden put aside 10% of a big equity deal with China, 10% uh, equity for to help be held by Hunter for the big guy. And the big guy is Joe Biden. 
And Tony Bobolinsky has evidence of that. And um, so uh, we know that that grand jury in Delaware was asking um, last summer various um, former business partners of Hunter, who is the big guy? But if they really wanted to know who is the big guy, they would have called Tony Bobolinsky. They would have That's subpoenaed right. him and got him to be a witness. That's right. But they never did. That's right. They, they, so the cover-up is amazing. The yeah. cover-up, as so often, is more sinister than the story itself. But, look, I mean, yeah. also incredible as the story is, but I also find very sinister as a, as a journalist, and you would too, I'm sure, the behaviour of what we now call the mainstream media. I mean, we didn't used to use that phrase three years ago, or certainly we didn't use it in terms of a sort of monolithic body that moves and acts the same way. But in your case, with the honourable exception, of course, with the New York Post, it did exactly that. The entire media, and I think including our colleagues at the Wall Street Journal, just stayed mum on this. They didn't report anything about it. What is going on with the media? Why is it now very much an instrument of the state in some instances? Look, I, I give the rest of the media a bit of a free pass, uh, not entirely, but, I mean, this was a very problematic story to start with. You know, it was... We we had the hard drive, but if you didn't have it, it was a difficult story for the New York Times, say, to report. Um, and there was cowardice. And it really, it was Cole Allen, um, mm. who you know, our former editor at the Daily Telegraph, uh, and who was the editor-in-chief of the New York Post. Um, and he, he was the one who made the final call and had the cojones, really, to, uh, to say yes to this this story, and we had done our due diligence. Um, we were, you know, absolutely certain that this was uh, real. This was authentic. We'd um, verified these emails that we were publishing with other recipients of it. Um, we were comfortable that this story was um, was authentic. But even then, you know, it's a big call to be um, coming out with a, a huge uh, allegations of corruption against one of the two candidates for president. Mm -hmm. And I guess there was just cowardice from other media. But after the election, there was just no um, no excuse for the New York Times to take 19 months to acknowledge that um, the laptop was real, that the emails that we published were authentic, um, you know, that Hunter Biden was in hot water. And they only did the New York Post did that and sort of the floodgates opened and suddenly the Washington Post and CNN, everybody admitted that the story was real. And, uh, and you know, the Washington Post tried to do a fact check on a story that I wrote um, about uh, it wasn't just a meeting that Joe Biden had had with this Ukrainian guy. It was actually a dinner that Hunter had organised at an Italian restaurant in Washington or in Georgetown and uh, called Cafe Milano. And he hadn't just invited his Ukrainian business partner, he'd invited Kazakhstanis and Russians. Mm -hmm. And so it was a three-for-one deal to introduce his father, the then vice president. And, uh, and, you know, the Washington Post thought that they'd do a fact check and prove it wrong. And they went to the White House, you won't respond to me, but um, they went to the White House and the White House admitted, yes, well, you know, yeah, finally, yeah, Joe did go to that dinner, but he didn't stay for very long and it was not for any nefarious purpose. <laughs> what a joke. But uh, the Washington Post just reported it as if that was normal. Really, that just blew out of the water. All the denials that Joe Biden's campaign had made after our story was first published mm. in October of 2020. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, there's no excuse for the media not to hold the president to Ab account for telling lies. Absolutely not. And, and all credit to Kyle Allen, great editor, of which we have Absolutely. fond memories here in Australia. Look, yes. uh, in this short amount yep. of time we have left, Miranda, the, I want to talk again about the role of social media, of big tech in this. I think your story really was the first time I woke up to how serious this problem is. Uh, we've seen it time and time again. Uh, you know, only a few weeks ago, we had Dr. Joe Bhattacharya on this program, a, a distinguished immunologist at uh, Stanford University who was censored by Facebook and, and by the other social media companies much the same way, and there's evidence there of high-level collusion between government authorities and the high-tech authorities. 
It was only a matter of time before I think we started to see their interference in Australian politics. And lo and behold, last week, it seems they've uh, big tech has, has decided to buy into the contentious debate over the so-called voice to parliament, something that's going to be put to a referendum in this country. Uh, as, as a change to the Constitution. Last week, the Institute of Public Affairs posted a video on Facebook in which Senator Jacinda Bryce, James McCraw, and a respected academic, Anthony Dillon, just explained there why they were voting no. That was taken down by Facebook because they said it violated their rules. It seems that Facebook is taking sides on this debate. And, and wait for it, you know, in support of a so-called Aboriginal voice to Parliament, an Aboriginal woman elected to Parliament is being denied a voice on Facebook. I mean, this is blatant and, and, and extremely damaging and frightening in the context of Australian politics. Would you agree? It, it really is. It's so sinister. It's so frightening. It's Big Brother. It's the Stasi. It's all of that. And it does not surprise me one bit because this has been happening in the United States. I, I dare say it's probably been happening in Australia. Um, over COVID particularly, um, you know, Facebook and Twitter have weighed in and deplatformed people, um, censored people, shadow banned people, uh, anything that does, the, any dissension from the sort of government line is quickly stamped out. Um, and so, you know, they always have an excuse. So, you know, it might be the voice one day, it might be COVID another day, it might be vaccines, climate change is another one. Today, we just got news, um, the uh, American Medical Association has written a letter to um, Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, um, the Department of Justice and Big Tech, basically, to say, uh, you need to investigate and censor people who are criticising those hospitals which are conducting um, gender transit or whatever you call it, you know, gender mutilation, basically, surgery mm. on minors, on children, chopping off breasts and so on. Um, and uh, there's been a, a lot of uh, sort of commentary about that. A lot of parents are upset about the fact that schools are now putting children into this sort of uh, transgender counselling without their permission, that hospitals are conducting gender transitioning without parents' consent. Uh, and this is, you know, a serious issue that people should be allowed to speak up on. And yet we, we now find that the AMA is going to do what they've done before, what other um like the teachers' union did uh, a, a little while ago with parents who were complaining at school board meetings about critical race theory and gender ideology. Um, they complained to, again, to Merrick Garland, to the DOJ, and the White House was involved, and they managed to sick the FBI onto parents at school board meetings. You are seeing this unholy alliance between government, big tech, and also, and I think you'll see it in, in Australia, um, the, at law enforcement. And so uh, that's a really chilling situation. It is like East Germany. Um, and I, I think, look, for, for America, I think, and, and this will have knock-on effects for Australia, um, I, I think if the Republicans win, as it looks like they will, at least the House, if not the Senate, next month, um, they will start doing investigations and cracking down on big tech. I think if they win back the White House, um, they will be able to break up big tech. I think there's a lot of um, a, a lot of demand for that. And also to uh, do something about the FBI, which is abusing its power, has no accountability. And um, the, the fact is that Facebook and Twitter and Google, these are um, globalist oligopolies. They don't care about the the Constitution of the United States. They don't care about um, Australian civil liberties. They um, they are a law unto themselves. They're more powerful than the leader of the free world, as they showed when they deplatformed President Donald Trump. Um, Australian parliamentarians are pretty. Some of them are pretty aware of the threat, uh, but. I wonder if they are willing to do what it takes to safeguard Australian liberties, because really it, it suits government to have big tech on their side and silencing dissent. It works for yeah. the Labor Party for that to continue yeah. because they want the voice. So um, I don't know yeah. how how Australians really um, 
fight back against it. At least in America, there are sort of uh, there are legal recourses. There's their constitutional rights. I, I feel like Australians are less protected than Americans. Well, you've done us a great service by alerting us to this, Miranda. Thank you very much for your work. Your book, your best-selling book, Laptop from Hell, Hunter Biden, Big Tech and the Dirty Secrets the President Tried to Hide, published by Simon & Schuster in the United States, available from most major online booksellers. Thank you very much for joining me on Battleground. Thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Well, speaking about the CPAC conference, congratulations to Andrew Cooper, Warren Mundine and all the volunteers at CPAC for staging such an impressive and important event. And congratulations too to Jack and everybody here at ADH for the live coverage which had an audience of hundreds of thousands, the kind of daytime audience the ABC would be thrilled with any day of the week. All the sessions, including mine and Amanda Stoker's, are available on demand on the ADH app. I lost count of the number of people who came up to me for a yarn. Uh, we love your feedback and it's especially good to hear it face to face. But don't let that stop you sending your emails or adding your comments to my articles in The Australian if you wish, which I'm embarrassed to say are often more insightful than the column itself. The email address is on your screen right now. That's nickcater at adh.tv, nickcater at adh.tv. Well, it's clear that a lot of Australians share my concerns about the assaults on our traditional values that I discussed earlier with Amanda Stoker. Jeff writes, Conservatives have allowed this to happen due to their apathy and passivity. They were inactive in the face of activism, silent in the face of lies and media control. Not a conservative voice can be found on it. If there is a fight back, and there needs to be, it hasn't shown its head above the parapet yet. Well, Jeff's correctly identified the problem, if not the answer. On the power of big tech, Mike writes, the fact that social media has the power to remove or censure reasonable voices is something that concerns me greatly. But Jacinda Ardern's call to censure anything that goes against her beliefs will meet the voice of democracy at some stage. That's right, Mike. Uh, by my calculation, Jacinta Ardern will reach the, will hear the voice of democracy this time next year when her three-year term is currently up. And she's a great reason why we need to keep three-year terms and not move them to four. Mulos offers a simple solution to social media censorship. I cancelled social media before, I had the, before it had the opportunity to cancel me two years ago. It was one of the best decisions of my life, akin to breaking a destructive addiction. Well, one day at a time, Mulos, one day at a time. Mark offers his thoughts on the best way to fight back against the creeping forces of woke. I'm predicting there'll be a time in the near future that the most important thing will be knowing how to keep your ammunition dry and run, down, crawl, observe, aim and fire and hit your target at 300 metres. Well, I'm assuming that's a metaphor, Mark. It's not the spirit, perhaps in the spirit of the title of the show, Battleground, because I couldn't endorse the use of such violence. Uh, my thanks to Barry for going to the heart of the matter. When you remove Christianity, its values and an infallible God almighty and an empty space remains, it fills with fallible man's concepts of religion, self, climate change, racism, planet worship. We are left with division, anger, selfishness, disrespect and chaos. As Christ prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We'll keep those emails coming, nickcater at adh.tv. And thanks to all of you for helping to make, the ADA, helping to make ADHD the fastest growing free speech channel in Australia. Do yourself a favour, download the app on your phone or smart TV. I'll be back again next Friday at 8pm or on demand 24 hours a day. Thank you.